Hello, welcome to a special edition of MLEX's Regulatory Podcast. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor, and we're hitting your feed this week to talk about our special report covering the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on competition. Indeed, the report is titled Competition Concerns in the Time of COVID-19. And the report is up on our website, mlexmarketinsight.com, and is ready to be downloaded. Broadly, the report covers the regulatory response to the pandemic in areas of antitrust, M&A and state subsidy policies. Our reporters around the world have been weighing up what parts of the response are likely to remain in place over coming months and what the lasting effects of the pandemic are likely to be. There's too much in the report to summarise in a humble podcast, so today I've chosen just a few of the areas that we've covered, and we'll drill down on those issues with three of our reporters. We'll look at the controversial M&A measures adopted in the Philippines as a result of COVID-19. We'll also look at how antitrust enforcement in the European Union has been affected. First, though, we'll take a look at the pandemic's impact on mergers and acquisitions in the U.S., To do that, I'm joined by Curtis Eichelberger, who covers M&A for us from Washington, D.C., although he's dialing in today from Philadelphia. Uh, Curtis, firstly, how has the market's reaction to COVID-19 changed uh, since the Northern Hemisphere spring? Well, companies looking to be acquired earlier this year were either overwhelmed by the emergence of COVID-19 and just trying to stay in business, concerned about furloughing their employees, working at a distance, or they were you know, largely left struggling to justify their valuations. You know, they didn't know what their, their future revenues were going to be. So how could they determine if they were going to pay a good price or if they were asking for the right price? But the pipeline for deals in attractive industries like life sciences, technology, and industrials, they're still there. And we're starting to see them come back this fall. In fact, uh, just earlier this month, the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, released some new numbers that showed a big pop in HSR filings. That's the pre-merger notification filing that companies that are merging and they're above a certain threshold uh, have to make with the antitrust agencies. And what we saw was that in August, there were 182 proposed mergers that were submitted uh, to the FTC or the Department of Justice. And that was a 63% jump from July and a 5% jump from August a year earlier. So that was a, was a significant jump. We need to see if we get two months in a row, three months in a row. But just for some comparison's sake, in 2019, there were 156 HR, HSR filings. In 2020, for the same month, there was 138. But in April, for example, there was 163 filings last year and just 79 this year. And in May, there was 191 last year and just 73 this year. So it took a real beating and as firms were uncertain. And now we do see that we're coming back. And as we head into the fourth quarter, our reporting has shown us that uh, lawyers that work with these companies, the companies themselves have said to us, you know what, we think this is going to really pick up in the fourth quarter. So that's what we're expecting. Okay, now the US government is flooding the market with cash infusions and the Federal Reserve is keeping rates at historic lows. Uh, Shouldn't that lead to greater M&A activity? Well, you're right. There's a a lot of money in the market. Uh, Consumers aren't spending as much because they're not leaving their homes. And on on some products like uh, entertainment and food, uh, that money is just kind of building up. And 
and, and then on the other, uh, in the bigger deals where you know companies have held back, waiting to see how this is going to play out, all that money is kind of just sitting in the market looking for a good place to be spent. And M&A is likely to be one of those areas. So where dealmakers that refrain from entering into transactions and investments during a time of real uncertainty are now looking to use that money. Um, On the flip side, that could drive up valuations for some companies a little bit higher than they should be. You've seen a lot of uh, very high valuations for tech companies right now. So this is going to be interesting to see. That's kind of the rub. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the next couple of months. Um, With all this money coming back into the market, what what are the deals looking like? Are you still getting fair valuations? And what's kind of the back and forth going to look like on that? In terms of private equity, uh, they've largely been on the sidelines. A lot of private equity got bit uh, when when the market crashed in March, April, May. Um, Those who didn't get hurt uh, discovered that there was investment-grade debt at great prices, and they invested in that. So uh, in the next couple of months, we're going to see probably a, a clash between buyer and seller where there's a lot of money out there in the market. And so we're, it's kind of, we're kind of excited to see how that plays out. Mm. Now, the U.S., as we know only too well, is holding elections in two months' time. How are companies factoring that into their decision making? So companies that are expecting a political change, meaning that you know, Joe Biden, the Democrat, if, if he were to, to win – over the, uh, the current president, Donald Trump, who's Republican, uh, companies are saying that if that happens in the coming year, antitrust and the tax environment will likely only get worse uh, under a Democrat in the White House, and especially if, there are, if you have a Democratic uh, majority in the con- Congress. Um, others say that uh, if you're going to get a deal done and it's like a long shot deal, you got problems in the deal, it's probably too late at this point to try that because you're going to get a second request and it's going to be into the next year and under a Democratic administration before that really is heard. So if you have a deal that could get, that could get easier approval, maybe in the 30-day window of the initial filing, uh, you should make that filing now. And we've, we've heard from a lot of attorneys saying, you know, go, go, go. If I've got, if I've got a deal that I think can get done, maybe the companies are thinking maybe we wait, we wait a little bit longer and see how things play out. No, if you think you can get this through, now's a good time. Okay, so much for the elections. What other fears, uh, concerns, or events might uh, continue to reside in the market in a way that might affect outcomes? So there are a couple of things. Um, lawyers have noticed that in uh, you know, solid companies, uh, in downtrodden sectors like travel, food services, entertainment, I mentioned that earlier, there are some opportunities possibly to eliminate a weakened competitor. Might be a good buying opportunity right now before things get too much better. The risk is that if a vaccine isn't developed, we keep hearing later this year, early next year, who knows. But if it's not developed and uh, you have a buyer picking up a weakened competitor and we don't come out of this and the broader economy doesn't come back, then the purchase could end up... uh, acting something of like a, like an anchor around you know both the buyer and seller that brings them both under. So there's a concern about that. Do you take advantage of this opportunity and make a buy, or could that be the death of you? Lawyers are also saying firms are likely to argue that government market share data is based on pre-COVID-19 analysis, and that post-pandemic shares for companies uh, that have been damaged are significantly smaller. So in theory, 
This will make it harder for the government to either meet its burden of proof or shift that burden to the companies. And then lastly, there's also been some adjustments made during COVID-19 that's going to reduce some of the risk in the deals going forward. Uh, Businesses have made adjustments during the last couple months to ensure that buyers can't use COVID-19 as an excuse to back out of a deal. Nobody's surprised anymore. And you're seeing that language getting worked into agreements. Um, where, and also where sellers can't get away with you know, outsized uh, revenue and valuation projections. People are kicking the tires a little bit more now and, uh, than, than, than perhaps they did uh, prior to the pandemic. Okay, Curtis, plenty of moving parts, plenty of uncertainty. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, James. Curtis Eigelberger covers mergers and acquisitions for MLEX from Washington, D.C., and he's the co-author, along with our global head of mergers, Flavia Fortes, of an article covering M&A in the U.S., which is part of the special report that we've been talking about today. Still on the issue of mergers, the special report also covers what is possibly the most radical regulatory response to the pandemic, the decision by the government of the Philippines to curtail the merger control powers of the regulator. Under a package designed to help the country's industry to recover, the government has granted a two-year exemption from regulatory scrutiny for all deals with a transaction value below 50 billion pesos. That's $1 billion US. That's a very high threshold, and it will see a lot of deals fly under the radar. Our Southeast Asian correspondent, Jet Damaso Santos, has been covering the package, and she joins me now from Jakarta. Okay, Jet, uh, tell me something about the, uh, the, the reasoning or the logic behind this provision in the Philippines. So the provision is part of the second COVID response law, which is essentially a $3 billion stimulus package that's designed to supposedly help the Philippine economy recover better and faster. So in theory, lawmakers want to make it easier for businesses to sort of do what they need to do in order to recover well from the pandemic, which is why they included this provision. I guess that whether that thinking is justified is is arguable. But since the provision is part of the stimulus package, which is mostly seen as necessary and urgent, it's very difficult to challenge. But the underlying logic here is that a merger control is a hindrance. It's seen as something that is cumbersome and difficult for business to manage, right? Yeah, well, um, it really depends on who you ask. It's, for businesses, yes, I guess you can say that. Um, merger control still is relatively a new layer of bureaucracy that they have to they have to go through. And it's only been about three years since it began. But from the perspective of the Philippine Competition Commission they do meet their merger review deadline. So for them, they don't cause any unnecessary delay. And they have approved like a large majority of the deals that are notified. Like out of over 200 deals reviewed, the PCC has so far only prohibited one anti-competitive merger. They've also introduced expedited processes for certain deals. And for the pandemic, they say that if a company does have to do a rescue merger, there is a failing firm defense included in the law. Well, what does the PCC think about this? Is the regulator okay with this? I'm guessing that there would be some uh, some skepticism and some sense of caution, right? Yeah, they definitely are not. I think it's safe to say they're not. Um, the PCC has been consistent about how competition policy is so much more important now to help the economy recover better from, from the pandemic. Not Not necessarily faster, but... I guess, in a healthier, more sustainable manner. The fear, of course, is that 
um, unchecked mergers would exacerbate the oligopoly of conglomerates ruling over the Philippine economy. In fact, the PCC tried to fight earlier versions of the provision, which were milder than the ones we have now. In the earlier ones, they were only proposing a one-year exemption instead of two, and only for deals involving essential goods and services. So this one came as a surprise to them, actually. Now, I know that we usually just cover the regulatory side of things and not the political side of things, but what is going on at a political level, in your view? Is this a populist move on the part of the Duterte government, or is there something more at play here? Well, there's certainly a perception in some sectors that this has been done to accommodate the interests of, of businesses that are close to the existing government. Um, a lot of politicians and businessmen in, in the Philippines do have um, sort of unethical relationships, to put it mildly. All right. So what happens from here? Where does this law go and uh, what should we expect? Well, the law is now expected to be signed next week. That's what the latest uh, is from the from Malacanang. That means uh, that the $50 billion merger threshold will kick off sometime in October. But now the PCC says, and, and this is still not official, it's only from, from discussions with PCC officials, uh, they do say that even if you're exempted, even if your deal is exempted, it would still be better to voluntarily notify, especially if you feel there's a possibility the deal could be anti-competitive because they still can review your deal later on. Here's how it's going to work. The $50 billion merger threshold will be in place for two years, likely from October, and that will exempt a large majority of, of deals that are currently notified now. But then 12 months after the law is enacted, so like a year from now, the PCC is going to regain its powers to initiate a review into any deal that it thinks might be anti-competitive. And so if the deal is problematic, even if it's been completed, then the PCC can go back and, and review it and impose conditions to remedy it or worse, possibly even try to unwind it. So that creates a risk for companies who maybe now think the next two years is a free pass. Jet, thank you so much for your work uh, for the special report and all of your coverage uh, from Southeast Asia. Speak soon. Bye. All right. Thank you. Jet Damaso Santos, MLEX's correspondent covering Southeast Asia, speaking to me from Jakarta late last week. And the Philippine COVID-19 legislation is included in an Asia-Pacific regional wrap on regulatory responses to the pandemic, which is part of our special report. To Europe now, where the usually vigorous antitrust enforcement regime appears to have been dampened by the pandemic, with not a single company fined by the EU's antitrust watchdog in the six months since COVID-19 forced a shutdown. Now, this may be a coincidence, but the lack of significant enforcement operations in the bloc does raise the prospect of future political difficulties for the regulator when it needs to assert itself when dealing with larger employers who are still smarting from the economic effects of the pandemic. Luckily for us, MLEX's chief EU competition correspondent, Nicholas Hurst, has written a piece of analysis that deals with this very issue. And Nicholas joins me now from our offices on the not-always-picturesque Rue de la Loire in Brussels. Now, Nicholas, what did Europe's cartel enforcers do during the crisis? Well, not all that much, I would say. I mean, like most other people, they were confined in their in the homes. They were not working from the office. 
and probably most importantly they weren't able to conduct the dawn raids that uh, typically they do to kick off the the new investigations um of course all the legal back and forth the exchanges the uh, memos and so on could continue because people were still working and, and working pretty effectively we we hear but uh the no dawn raids and and uh, tellingly during the six seven months of confinement off and on church date the european commission at least didn't find a single european company for cartel offenses which is uh it's kind of interesting because normally these fines, you know, rain down fairly regularly. Nicholas, this sounds like a cartelist's paradise. Well, that's that's an impression that all the heads of the authorities are very keen to to, to rain back. So we may get a few calls in after after this. But um, the, one of the main reasons that there were no no fines is that when companies are struggling, laying off workers, when there's uncertainty about their future, it's not a good time to then announce bumper sanctions for fixing the price of, of, uh, of cereals or, or something. Was this absence of enforcement uh, something that featured in EU member states as well as at an EU level, or was there a, a different outlook there? I think broadly there were fewer sanctions uh, announced because of the kind of political sensitivity at the, uh, at the time. There were also, when sanctions were announced, they were reduced either by say, the French competition authority that fined makers of uh, ham, French ham makers, or there was a German court that reduced fines on beer makers. These are all important cartels in times when people are spending a lot of time at home. (laughs) And uh, so there 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 was activity, but not quite on the same level. Now, it would be wrong to say, however, that there was no... New cases that started, no sort of equivalent to dawn raids, um, no enforcement menace, because they did take action against people that perceived to be taking advantage of of the crisis. So, yeah, the Bundeskartellamt looked at Amazon, for example, to check that it was behaving properly to stop price gouging, and I think it was cleared. Or, or for example, in Italy, I think Sinmar. This is quite a an interesting one. Sinmar groups were are being investigated by the competition authority for allegedly working to stop outdoor films being, films being shown in outdoor film venues, which would obviously be safer for, for everyone given the, uh, the pandemic. Okay, so much for enforcement. On a more positive side of things, though, the EU regulator has helped European companies to work together in uh, managing the effects of the COVID-19 epidemic. Tell us something about how they've gone about doing that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the regulators were very active on that front. They really engaged with governments and and companies to help them, for example, pharmaceutical companies to cooperate so that they could ensure the supply of medicine. Or um, in Portugal, banks got together and agreed that they wouldn't kick people out of their homes if they didn't pay their mortgage mortgages. Opticians in France were allowed to get, get together and negotiate jointly with landlords because obviously uh, custom was in, in free fall. But uh, this, so they were very active on that front. Of course, this is all incredibly exceptional, this level of cooperation between businesses and companies. And I think in part, the regulators saw that this was inevitable, it had to happen. 
And they're very keen to make sure that they're part of the conversation so that once the crisis is over, they can then steer everyone back to the straight and narrow. Now, as Europe pulls out of the crisis, what uh, stays and what goes? How much of what has been talked about today will still be a factor a few months down the track? I think the dawn raids will kick off again pretty soon, probably with extra safety measures. And yeah, down the road, it'll be back, back to normal. I think the hearings that currently have been taking place remotely during investigations will once again take place in the dark rooms in, in Brussels and elsewhere, where hundreds of lawyers and economists congregate to fight the enforcers' cases. I think all those, those kind of procedural things will go, go back to what they were like. But I think there's the more long-lasting problem is that the real economy is in serious trouble. And so that sensitivity about whacking German car makers with big fines or hitting farmers with sanctions and so on is still going to be around for, for a long time, Once even once the COVID pandemic has finished. Uh, as long as the economic crisis continues, it's going to be difficult. Nicholas, thank you so much for talking to me. I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you very much. All the best. Nicholas Hurst is MLEX's chief EU correspondent and the special report that we've been talking about is available to be downloaded from the MLEX website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe to MLEX's podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And we'll be back on Friday with our usual weekly podcast. This week we'll be talking about recent developments in Japanese regulation. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor here at MLEX. Thank you for your company. Bye for now. Music